Well, good evening. Uh, Jacob had asked me to teach for a few weeks, and uh, as we discussed it, we decided to do some lessons on church history. I'm not actually going to start that until next week. Uh, tonight, I want to begin where our confession begins, and that's with, uh, with Scripture. So does everybody have a handout? Um, as confessing people, we believe, we confess that the Scriptures are perfect. Right? They contain no errors. They're, we use big words like infallible and inerrant and so forth. But we have to understand that when we say those things, we are actually talking about the original, what are called the autographs, the actual document that Moses wrote, or the actual document that Amos wrote, and so forth. <clears throat> so, okay, question. How many books are there in the Bible? 66, okay. So of those 66 original manuscript documents, how many of those do we currently possess today, still? Zero. Zero, not one. Big goose egg. Okay, so the Bible that you have in front of you, or that's in the pew pocket in front of you, uh, is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy ad nauseum, right? And not only that, the Bible wasn't written in English. So what you have is a translation of a copy of a copy of a copy and so forth. What you have between those two leather covers is thousands of years removed from those original autographs. So, can you, as a 21st century Christian, can you have any sort of confidence that what you have between those two leather covers remotely resembles what was originally written? Okay. Some people don't think so. If you look at uh, the, the second slide here on the at the bottom of the first page, this is from Charles Briggs. He was a 19th century Presbyterian minister in, in New York City. And he said, we'll never be able to attain the sacred writings as they gladdened the eyes of those who first saw them. He goes on to, to end his quote there with, we are cut off from them forever. Interposed between us and them is the tradition of centuries and even millenniums. Interestingly, he was eventually defrocked and he became an Episcopalian. But, uh, if you fast forward to more modern times, if you look at slide three, this is Bart Ehrman. Bart is a New Testament professor at UNC Chapel Hill. And in one of his books, he says, there are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Wow. Can we trust that? So there, there's a fancy scholarly term for this view that these guys are espousing, but I, I tend to use the technical word, poppycock. This is absolute nonsense, okay? <clears throat> but you get the vibe, right? You understand where they're going with this. They're, they're saying that we, we have no idea what the Bible originally said, and moreover, we can't even reconstruct what it said because it's been copied so many times over so many years. Uh, and there's so many errors and all of this. This reminds me of uh, every year at Christmas and Easter time, right? The cable channels trot out these so-called documentaries where we're all going to discover the real Jesus and all of that. Yeah. These are the kind of guys that they go to and interview, right? So the public gets a steady diet of this over the years, and people come to the conclusion that, well, we just can't rely on the Bible. But the fact is that the 
Biblical documents are the most well-attested ancient documents in existence. Bar none. It's not even close. So first, let's talk about the Hebrew scriptures, what we, what we call the Old Testament. Anybody know when they were written? Roughly. This is one of the hard things about reading the Bible, is keeping the timeline straight. Because our Bibles, our English Bibles, are not arranged chronologically. And the original Hebrew scriptures were collected topically, more or less, and not chronologically. But as Westerners, we tend to think chronologically. So um, I'll put in a shameless plug for my chronological Bible reading plans. <laughs> it's actually much easier, especially the Old Testament, if you read things in order. <clears throat> but let's get the timeline straight. First five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Okay, they're written. Oh, there we go. Jacob's got them right here. Shameless plug. I have digital versions too, if you'd like. Pentateuch is written roughly 2400 BC. So that's a long time ago. The middle prophets, like Amos, Micah, the prophet Isaiah, these guys are writing roughly 8th century BC. And the newest Old Testament book, anybody? What was the last one? Malachi. Right? Malachi is writing in the 5th century BC. So, a long time ago. In fact, it's so long ago that up until the 19th century, a lot of scholars said, well, that, that proves that Moses couldn't possibly have written the Pentateuch. Joshua couldn't have written the book that was attributed to him because 2400 BC, there, there were no established systems of writing. It was all oral tradition, just passed down from one generation to the next. Well, that is until the 1880s. We started discovering texts that were that old. That if you look at slide five, you'll see a cuneiform from Nippur that dates from the 24th century BC. Nippur is in modern-day Iraq. It's roughly 20 miles from the, the site of the city of Ur. Anybody know who came from Ur? Who knows, who knows their genesis? Abraham, right? So, Abraham called out of Ur of the Chaldees. This tablet that you see in slide 5 is 400 years older than Abraham. And Abraham, of course, is a whole lot older than Moses. So yes, there were in fact systems of writing at that time. Slide six shows, uh, this one's pretty interesting. This is a, a letter that's from the, the Tel Amarna collection. If you're into old documents and geeky stuff like that, you have to Google Tel Amarna. Uh, this is a letter from Amenhotep, who was the pharaoh of Egypt at the time, uh, to one of his vassals in Assyria, giving him some directions and instructions. This tablet is roughly 1400 BC. So again, let's think about timeline. 1400 BC is roughly the point at which Joshua is taking the people of Israel across the Jordan River into Jericho. You may have heard of that. <clears throat> so, this whole theory that there were no systems of writing back then is completely debunked and blown out of the water. Um, slide 7 shows the Aleppo Codex. Up until recently, this was the oldest existing copy of the Hebrew scriptures that we possessed. There, there were some others from roughly this time, the, the Leningrad Codex and some others. But this is from 920 AD. 
So that's old. But even in 900 AD, 2400 BC was a long, long time ago. Okay. So we're kind of back to the original question. How do we know that this represents what was originally written? And there's a couple of different ways. One is how the text was transmitted. Who did the copying and how did they do it? So in the ancient world, what, what did we call the people who were professional writers? Scribes. Okay? Um, scribes were very important people in, in the ancient world. If you were a king, like Amenhotep, and you had to send a letter, you didn't make one of those tablets. You had people for that. And who were the people for that? They were the scribes. They would take the wet clay and mark it with a stylus and then bake it. <clears throat> and in Amenhotep's case, uh, his poor scribes had to make duplicate copies of everything because he kept copies of all of his correspondence, and that's why we have Telemarno. But the Hebrew people, in a similar way, had scribes who copied the scriptures, and they had very strict rules about how, how, how they were copied. And there were a lot of counts involved. They would count the number of words on lines and the number of lines on a, on a document and the number of paragraphs in a document. And so you could, when you were done copying, you could easily tell if there was an obvious error. If any kind of error was found in the scroll, they would burn the whole thing and you'd have to start over again. So you had a pretty good incentive to not make a mistake. And then about the year 500 AD, within Judaism, there arose a group of people called the Masoretes. Anybody heard of Masoretes? Well, anybody who's not been to seminary heard of the Masoretes? <laughs> anybody ever heard of the Masoretic text? Yeah, okay. So if you look at the footnotes in your, in your Bible, you'll often see references to the Masoretic text. The Masoretes uh, sort of specialized in copying the scriptures. And they actually improved the way they were copied them in a number of ways. Ancient Hebrew was written without vowels. They only wrote down the consonants. Too poor to buy a vowel, I guess. <laughs> Kids ask your parents. Um, but when you read, a, an, if you were a Hebrew reading an ancient text, you would read the consonants, and you would have to just sort of mentally supply the vowels in between. Well, that's kind of a pain. Try it sometime. <laughs> But it, 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 you also run the risk of maybe mentally inserting the wrong vowel, and now you're reading the wrong word. So the Masoretes came up with a system called pointing. And you, it's pretty hard to see in that, in that little slide, but you'll notice that above and below some of the consonants, there are little dots. They're called points. And the location and number of those dots tells the reader which vowel to insert in which spot so that you read the right text. Are you on slide number? Uh, seven. Sorry. That is hard to see. Yeah, it's a little hard to see. And I can't read ancient Hebrew anyway. Uh, so there's the way that the text was transmitted. But there's also the fact that there are other streams of texts. So what does that mean? Well, the, the ancient Hebrew texts were translated into other languages, and some of the scrolls that we have in those other languages are even older than ones that we have in the Hebrew language. <clears throat> so in slide 8, you'll see a piece of the, the Hevar scroll. Now, that's a first century text. You'll also notice that that scroll is not in Hebrew. It's in Greek. 
So by the time of Christ, most Hebrew people spoke Greek. In fact, almost everybody spoke Greek, thanks to Alexander the Great. So having the scriptures in Hebrew didn't do the common person a whole lot of good. So Ptolemy and some others commissioned a group of men to translate the Hebrew scriptures into the common Greek of the day, and that's called the Septuagint. So oops, I'm sure everybody's heard of the Septuagint. So we have those fragments. We have uh, the Samaritans, for example. You've heard of the, the Samaritans. They were kind of rivals with the Jews. They were sort of, the Jews considered them half-breeds. But the Hebrew scriptures were translated into the Samaritan language, and we have very old scrolls, and we can read those and compare that with the other scrolls we have and see that the text hasn't changed. The Syriacs had their version of the Hebrew scriptures called the Peshetta. And so, for a very long time, that's how we used these texts. You would take various texts from, from uh, various ages, and you could compare them, and you could see that, that things hadn't changed. But then, in the middle of the 20th century, something big happened. Big, big discovery. Anybody know what that would be? The Dead Sea Scrolls, right? For geeky, textual people like me, that was a really big deal. Okay, so... In the Qumran area, about, well, it's about two kilometers from the Dead Sea, there's a collection of caves up in the mountains. And in 1946, a bunch of Bedouin shepherds went into these caves and they found jars, clay jars, with documents in them. Lots and lots and lots of documents. And over the next 10 years or so, those caves were excavated. So you can see on slide 10, you can see a picture of one of the caves there and what the jars sort of look like. So we have almost a thousand scrolls so far that have been taken out. <clears throat> so anybody know what, around the time of Christ, what were, what were people writing on? What was the material? Parchment? No. Papyrus. Right? Anybody know where papyrus comes from? Right, but how is it made? Reeds. Yeah. So you take reeds, and you slice it, and you squeeze out the pith from the middle, you spread it out into sheets, and you dry it. And it turns out that papyrus is, uh, well, it's easy to make, it's pretty inexpensive, it's easy to write on, but it has a problem. It degrades really quickly. So we don't have tons and tons of papyrus scrolls from before the time of Christ because they all decomposed a long time ago. But it turns out that if you take papyrus scrolls and you put them in clay jars and you seal them up and you put it in the top of a cave, in a mountain, up in an arid desert, it lasts a long time. <laughs> As that's exactly what happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Dead Sea Scroll find was very important because in those jars were either pieces, parts, or entire scrolls of every book in the Hebrew Old Testament, with the exception of Esther, which is interesting. There were also a lot of commentaries called the Targon, Jewish commentaries. One of the, one of the greatest finds was uh, on slide 11, you can see a, a photograph of the great Isaiah scroll. And that's important because it, it's the oldest complete copy of the scroll of Isaiah that we have. It's from about 125 BC. Now, who's been paying attention? 
One that I say was the oldest known Hebrew manuscript up until this time. You remember? 920. 80. Oh, sorry. Yeah. 80. So that means this scroll, this copy of Isaiah, is a thousand years older than the oldest scroll that we had up until this point. And you can take this scroll and compare it with the one from 920 AD and see that there's no changes to the text. Uh, there, are, there are some obvious copying errors. I mean, there's obvious places like a line got left out or a line got duplicated, right? But they're copied by humans. Slide 12, there is a blown up piece of the, of the Isaiah scroll. Again, I can't read ancient Hebrew. I wish I could. Um, so we can establish now the, the provenance, not the providence, but the provenance, the chain of custody of these texts all the way back to 125 BC. But when did we say the Pentateuch was written? 2400 BC. There's still a 2300 year gap. And if, if you're an unbelieving scholar, that's, that's a big deal. Because who knows what happened to those texts during the 2300 years that went by. But we know, as believers, that 125 years after this scroll was written, our Lord walked the earth. God became flesh. And Jesus not only accepted these texts as, as authentic, he cited them as authoritative. So, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Uh, and you can see on slide 13 there, you can actually go to the library and check this out if you want to take a stab at Hebrew. But that's the compiled, edited Biblia Hebraica. I think I'm pronouncing that right. So any questions about Old Testament? i got to watch my time here. A uh, question on uh, scholarly opinions. Hmm? So I believe... Like outside of Christendom, there's a movement for more uh, people to take more seriously oral traditions, especially in like indigenous cultures, as uh, reliable in their transmission of information. They'll cite things like uh, knowledge of nature and like, hey, our ancestors told us this plant is for this medicine, and lo and behold, science is like, yeah, that plant is for that medicine. Does that changing attitude help when we think about um, like transmission of the Bible? Because it's while we have the writing systems as well, like we understand that uh, there may be more to the oral trans. Because like when you're talking about the consonants being removed, and someone's like, "Oh, well, they might have thrown in a uh, wrong word because they got the wrong vowel." But if we believe that oral transmission is more reliable than maybe we used to think, does that ease people's concerns about transmission? I haven't, I haven't read anything along those lines. Uh, the scriptures have always been primarily written. And I, I'm sure that there's a lot of oral tradition around them. Um, but no, I don't know if that's changing today or not. It's a good question. I had a professor in seminary who talked about the oral tradition, and uh, his argument was that 
400 years to oral tradition is nothing. Just the way that the people thought. And so um, if you take, for example, uh, Genesis 1, which was um, not written by Adam, but was passed down. Sure. Um, its preservation is pretty reliable because, as Stephen said, there is this, this evidence that oral traditions, especially then, compared to the way our brains work now, was so much more reliable. So he, he approached it saying, a few hundred years really is nothing to worry about in terms of the reliability of oral tradition. So that's just a comment in line with what Stephen was saying. So with Genesis 1, people live for a really long time. So the generations were a lot longer, I guess. Does that make a lot of sense? Mm-hmm. Sure. All right, so let's talk about the New Testament. With the New Testament, we have a very different text written at a very different time by very different people, and so we have different issues. We do not have, with the New Testament, this problem of thousands and thousands of years of unaccounted time. In fact, if you look at slide 15, that's a little piece of what's called the Rylands fragment. It's a, it's a piece of, the, cop, of uh, the Gospel of John, and it dates to about 90 A.D., now, that's important, because when did John live? I mean, if we accept the common dating for the book of Revelation, if, if that was written in A.D. 95, give or take, that means that this scroll, this copy, was written within the lifetime of the author. And depending on how fast this particular scroll made its rounds, it would be theoretically possible for John to have stood up and said, hey, wait a minute, that's not what I wrote. <clears throat> we have other fragments of, of the Gospels that date to within, you know, say, 30 to 50 years of the life of the author. And that's very uncommon in ancient documents. Very uncommon. For example, who, who's heard of Aristotle? Famous philosopher, everybody's heard of Aristotle. Aristotle wrote roughly 380 B.C., give or take. But the oldest copy of Aristotle's works that we currently possess is from 1100 AD. That's 1400 years after he lived. Same with his most famous student, Plato. Our oldest copy of Plato's writings are about 1200 years after Plato lived. If you take a Western Civ course, you're going to study his, you're going to study Antonius and you're going to study Tacitus. Those historians, right? Their oldest copies of them roughly 900 years after they lived, okay? Well, when's the last time you saw a Discovery Channel special that said, oh, well, we can't trust Roman history because those documents are all, you know, a thousand years after it happened? No, those documents are all considered generally reliable. With the New Testament, we don't have that big gap. And we've got documents from within the lifetime of the author. The issue that we have with the New Testament is that there are multiple uh, families of texts, some different streams of texts. I'm going to talk about two quickly, the Byzantine text and the Alexandrian text. Anybody not heard of that before? Okay. So how did we end up with two different streams of New Testament texts? Well, if you look at the slide 16, you see a picture of the, the Roman Empire there. Pretty big place. By, say, 400 or so A.D., the western part of the empire, in that kind of mustard color, 
That's been heavily Romanized. They're all speaking Latin. They're writing in Latin. They're publishing in Latin. But on the eastern side, <clears throat> with the with the capital at, at Byzantium, or what's labeled on here as Constantinople, because Constantine, of course, renamed the city after himself, as emperors are wont to do. On the eastern end of the empire, they're still speaking Greek. And there's a lot of, let's call it bad blood, between the east and the west. There was a big schism in 1054. These guys didn't really talk to each other for a long time. The east and the west differed in worship practices. They differed in styles. They're, obviously, their language was different. Lots and lots of differences. And in the east, they've translated the scriptures into Latin. Jerome famously created the... Anybody know what Jerome... The Vulgate, right. So in the West, we have, our, we have our Vulgate. We don't need your goofy Greek stuff. And in the East, they're saying, well, the scriptures were written in Greek. We have, we have the real thing. So they don't really talk to each other for about a thousand years until the 1400s. Anybody know what happened in the East in the 1400s? Big shakeup. The Ottoman Turks decided to visit the eastern part of the Roman Empire, burning, sacking, pillaging, and so forth. So as they get closer and closer to the capital of Byzantium, the scholars all abandon the universities, they abandon the schools, and they all run west for their lives. And what do they take with them? They're Greek texts. So this is pretty cool, how God's providence works. At the same time that the Ottomans are coming in and driving all these scholars to the West, bringing their Greek texts with them. In the, e, in, in, in the West, those scholars are undergoing what was called the Renaissance. They were all about ancient documents and going ad fontes, right, back to the sources. Don't give us translations, don't give us commentaries. We want to read the originals. Well, here come all these, these scholars out of the East with their Greek texts. So a lot of scholars start collating and collecting these texts and smoothing out the obvious errors and then publishing collected Greek texts. So slide 17, you'll see Erasmus's Greek text published in 1516. I think he was the first to publish the Greek and the Latin together. This is a very, very important book. And it also highlights the importance of the printing press at the time, because you could make lots of copies of this really quick. But this text is important. When Martin Luther is, is hiding away in the Wartburg Castle, and he's translating the Bible into German, okay, this Greek text is what he's looking at. When William Tyndale translates into English, this is the text that he's looking at. <clears throat> Later on, after Erasmus, though, there was a, a guy named Stephanus. He, he kind of took over the publishing the later editions of this text. Um, his, his version was used by the exiles that ran from Bloody Mary when they created the Geneva Bible. You've heard of the Geneva Bible, right? So all the way up through the end of the 19th century, most Bibles, like the King James Bible, uh, they're based on this Greek 
text called the, the received text, Textus Receptus, from, from the East. Today, most of our Bibles are not based on this particular text. They're based on a different text called the Alexandrian text. <clears throat> so, if you look at uh, slide 18 there, there was a big discovery in 1844 by this handsome guy named Constantine Tischendorf. <laughs> he was in a monastery on the Sinai Peninsula doing some research, and in a trash can he found a very, very old Greek text. The monks in this monastery were using it as wrapping paper. They were ripping pages out of this ancient book, wrapping things in it, and when they were done, they were throwing it away. Why would they do such a thing? Well, they had their Latin Vulgate. What, we don't need this goofy Greek stuff. So he spent a lot of time, he made a lot of trips going back to this monastery. He spent a lot of money bribing monks and so forth. And he was able to get, seriously, it's a good story, you should read it. Uh, he was able to get almost the entire uh, almost the entire New Testament document. There's a picture there of Matthew 6 on the one page. Um, yeah, you really should read this story. It's, it's, there's a lot of intrigue here. And the, the thing ended up going up for auction. It was owned by the Russian Tsar at one time. Now it's in the British Museum. The, uh, anyway, it's a great story. I'm sorry? How old was this one? Uh, this, this particular one, Codex Sinaiticus, I believe is from the end of the 300s AD, so pretty old. The, the significance is we, we started discovering, I say we like I was there, um, scholars started discovering a lot of these really, really old texts, um, especially in and around Alexandria, Egypt, around this time, late 1800s. Okay. These texts are far, far older than the Greek texts that came from the East. Right? Now, the Greek texts from the East, the Byzantine texts, they tend to be a little wordier. The Greek is much more polished. It reads easier, I guess, if you read Greek. Um, the Alexandrian text tends to be a little shorter. That's why you'll notice that your ESV is, quote-unquote, missing a few verses that are not in the King James Version. Um, but today, if you look on uh, slide 19, this is the collated Novum Testamentum. And again, you can go to the library and check this out. There's a couple of copies of this at Redeemer's Library if you want to grab one in there. So, I love history. I didn't used to love history, but now I love history. We all step into time, into the, into the stream of history, at the point where we arrive, without really knowing how we got here, or the background, or the state of things. And someday we're going to step out of this stream of history, and it's going to keep right on going. So, we have just as much responsibility as the Masoretes, or the Alexandrian monks to preserve the scriptures to pass to our children and their children and generations unborn. That's what I had. Actually, I have a lot more, but I had to cut it short. <laughs> Any questions on New Testament? Yes. 
I've always been, I've always wondered with the older Greek or Roman historical documents, like you mentioned with Aristotle and Buddha, how they compare, how the oldest fragments compare completion to their works that we know today compared to the Bible. Because we see like the, the oldest, the picture they had in the oldest copy of the Gospel of John, the older, or the oldest known works of like Plato and Aristotle, like fragments or the complete works? The complete works. Okay. Yeah, I don't know of any little pieces, fragments of Greek philosophers. Okay. Is that where maybe some of the criticism comes in then? Is that maybe why no one questions those? Is because even though they're not as old, they are those ones we know are still complete? Well, uh, it could be. I, I think a lot of the criticism just comes from the fact that that it's a sacred document, mm-hmm. right? It's you know, the same reason why conservative evangelical pastors are not the ones that Discovery Channel interviews yeah. when they do their shows. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no one's facing their lives off of Plato's Republic or whatever. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and the other thing is because it's a sacred text, when you find a little tiny fragment of it, people tend to want to hang on to it or to save it. If you found a little piece of a page torn out of you know, a Plato book, well, so what? They did find a piece of Aristotle from 100 AD on the back of some farm um, inventory paper. Oh, really? Um, that, well, they had, turned it, they had turned it into farm inventory paper. It was originally Aristotle's writings from about 100. So, and I don't know if that was a complete um, work of Aristotle or if that was just certain pieces of it. Um, so there's a little bit of it. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the monks using wrapping paper. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it really is. It really is. But there, the very last slide there, number 20, uh, I've got a quote from Frederick Kenyon. Um, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God handed down without essential loss from generation to generation throughout the centuries. And there's, like I said, it's the most well-attested ancient text that there is. Okay, nobody is sleeping. I'm going to call that a win. <laughs> let's, let's just close with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us to stumble about in the dark, but instead you have given us a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Would we be people who take that light and shine it into this dark world that your kingdom may be complete. In Christ's name, amen.